Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. In John chapter 4, we have the description of the Lord Jesus speaking with the Samaritan woman at the well. In John chapter 4, beginning in verse 3, it says that he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? And then Jesus answered, but I'll come back to that in just a moment. What's very interesting about this situation is that the Lord Jesus is speaking with a woman at the well. First of all, in the society at that time, men did not speak with women. That was just simply considered to be unacceptable. Men would not speak with women in general under any circumstances, except within a private household. And there are many reasons for that. There are many good reasons for that. There are some very valuable cultural implications of that. For example, it reduces the opportunities for people to have inappropriate relationships. It also reduces a lot of the complications that men and women have when trying to select one another for a wife or for a husband because in general judgments like that are clouded by the presentation that people give of themselves to each other. For example, when people go on a date, when they go out and spend some time with each other, in general what we do is we tend to present ourselves in a way that will be most appealing to the other person. It's a very understandable thing, a very natural reaction. You want the other person to like you if they're going to spend some time with you. But in doing that, sometimes it can be very easy to be a little bit deceptive in terms of who you really are as a person. You may hide some of your discrepancies or some of the things that you know are relatively negative if it was to be a part of the relationship that you have with another person. We all have issues in our life, and to let other people know about these issues right away can sometimes make us look as though we are unappealing, and this person may not be willing to accept us. And so we generally present ourselves in a way that is somewhat deceptive, Obviously not totally deceptive, and it's not necessarily done intentionally, although on occasion it certainly can be done intentionally. But in order to avoid these kinds of issues, these kinds of complications, the way that societies have handled this, for the most part, throughout the course of history, has been by isolating men and women and not allowing them to interact with each other in this way. And so when it comes to marriage... The marriages were generally arranged by the parents because the parents would have a greater understanding of the children than the children would often have of themselves. And so the parents would look for a good match for their son or for their daughter on their behalf. And with their approval, with the approval of the child, of course, 
they would in general have the opportunity to agree or not agree to marry the other person. With their approval, they would be married and they would form a new family, a new household, and they would build a new life for themselves. There was one exception, however, with regards to this, that it was permissible for a man to speak with a woman, and that was at the public well. That was considered to be acceptable. One of the reasons why this was considered to be acceptable was because it was very public. In general, you could expect to see other people there, and so there would not be very many opportunities for people to build inappropriate relationships when they met there. However, there was the expectation that the conversations would be relatively limited. Limited to what? Well, they would be limited to the purpose for which they would be there, which would be for obtaining water. In general, the women would draw the water from the wells, and a man would ask a woman if she would be willing to provide him with a drink of water. Now, the way that this would normally work is that if a man had a specific interest in a woman, if he had a specific interest in a young lady that he was wanting to marry, then he would ask her for a drink of water. And based on her reaction, how she would respond to him, if she would give him a smile or if she would give him a frown or a look of disgust or something like that, then he would know right away that he did not appeal to her at all. So while she may be appealing to him, he's not appealing to her, and so he can go on to the next lady perhaps on another day. And so this was a way that men and women could interact with each other in a very simple way, in a very small way, just to let each other know that there may be an interest between each other. And then, of course, if there was an interest, then the man would go to his father and his father would assist him in negotiating the terms with the woman's parents. The historical reference for this experience at the well was given in Genesis chapter 24 when Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. In Genesis chapter 24, you have the description of a man searching for a wife for another man, or of course he could have been looking for himself, but in Genesis chapter 24, he was looking for a wife for Isaac, and in that situation, he went to a woman who was there at the well, he asked her for a drink of water, she responded by providing him with a drink of water, and she also offered to water his camels. And so through this act of service, he was able to observe her, he was able to study her, and based on his knowledge and experience of women, he was able to determine whether or not she would be a good candidate as a wife for his master's son. And so that's the historical reference that we normally refer to, but this is definitely something that was done throughout the course of time in many cultures within this region, even up until the time of the Lord Jesus. And so what does this look like to the Samaritan woman? Well, it looks like there is this man who is coming to her to let her know that he has an interest in her. And this would definitely be very unusual because she was a Samaritan and he was a Jew. Jews and Samaritans did not marry with one another. That was definitely considered to be unacceptable in the society at that time, in both the Samaritan society and in the Jewish society. However, it was more so in the Jewish society, it was the Jews who rejected the Samaritans more than the Samaritans had rejected the Jews. And I do give a complete explanation of this matter, the issues between the Samaritans and the Jews in a series of programs that I presented on the history of the Samaritans. And so for more information, I would like to encourage you to listen to those programs. But in this situation, what we have is we have a Samaritan woman who's being spoken to by a Jewish man, 
and in this context, it normally means that he has an interest in her with regards to considering her for a wife. That's how this would be interpreted in the society, in the culture of this time, when the Lord Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And then in verse 9, we have her response where it says, therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? Again, it would not be unusual for someone to ask her for a drink of water, necessarily, but what is unusual is that he is a Jew, not a Samaritan, who is asking her for a drink of water. Now, in my version, which I'm using right now, which is the New American Standard, the updated edition, it says in parentheses, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. What does that mean, to have no dealings with Samaritans? Does it mean that the Jews never engage in any commerce with the Samaritans at all? Is that what it means? That certainly is not what it means. Because if you look at verse 8, it says very clearly that his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. If they had gone into the city to buy food and she was there at the well nearby the city, then why is it that she's saying that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Of course they can have dealings with Samaritans. Of course they can trade with Samaritans. What is she really saying? Well, what she is saying is that Jews would not receive anything from a Samaritan without purchasing it from them. That's what that meant. You see, a Jew could certainly purchase things from Samaritans. We have many historical references that we can look to in order to determine this. For example, in Tractate Gittin in the Talmud, Folio 10a, in the section on the Gomorrah, it says very clearly that a Jew could purchase unleavened bread from a Samaritan for Passover use. And there are many references like that throughout the Talmud through the historical records that we have of that time. A Jew could certainly do business with a Samaritan. There was no problem with him trading with a Samaritan because the Samaritan was living in relative obedience to the Mosaic Law when it came to the issues concerning food, ritual uncleanness or cleanness. The standards by which the Samaritans lived were compatible with Pharisaical Judaism to that extent, and so the Jews would have no problem buying and selling. That was not the problem. The problem was that Jesus was asking something from the woman without offering her anything in return. That was considered to be a dealing or something that we call of gratis or of graciousness. It is a situation where a Jew would be receiving something for free and by default the Jew would then be somewhat obligated to the Samaritan. There would be a sense of obligation because there was not a completed transaction. It's sort of like saying, look, if you give me something for free, I'll be very appreciative of that and I will owe you to a certain degree. I may not owe you anything tangibly, but one day we may find ourselves in a situation where you may need something that I can provide, and I should owe it to you. I should give it to you because you were merciful to me at one point. I should be merciful to you at this point. That's what the Samaritan woman was referring to. Subtly, she was referring to the fact that Jewish men did not marry Samaritan women. But practically speaking, a Jew would never receive something for free from a Samaritan, especially from a Samaritan woman. Then in verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now there's an awful lot that the Lord Jesus is saying here in this simple statement. First of all, he refers to the gift of God. 
He said, if you knew the gift of God, he's pivoting off of this issue of him asking her for a gift of water and now using that to refer to a gift that he would have available to give to her. That is the gift of God. He also uses this opportunity to let her know that she has no idea who he really is, what he's really doing there, and what he really has to offer. For him to say that she doesn't really know for sure or understand the depth of what he had to offer was again in line with the theme of him being there at the well speaking with a woman, because in general a man looking for a wife would present himself on the basis of what he had to offer, not just there for the purpose of seeing what she may have to offer him, but also on the basis of what he would have to offer her. And in this context, he would not be offering himself as a husband to her, to look after her, to care for her, to provide for her, safety and security, and the other things that a husband would generally provide a wife with. That's not what he's referring to. What he's referring to is the gift of God, that he is there for a different purpose, for a purpose other than what she is assuming. Either directly or indirectly, he is now revealing to her that he can provide her with something that she definitely does not have that is outside of the context of personal relationships that are normally initiated with a circumstance such as this. At the end of verse 10, the Lord Jesus also refers to living water, where he says, And who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. What does it mean for him to refer to living water? She doesn't ask him what living water means. She understood what living water meant. The phrase, the idiomatic expression of living water, had meaning. It had meaning in the society at that time. Living water is referred to in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 36. In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 36, living water is referred to the water that is acquired by collecting water from a spring or a cistern. The term refers to water moving freely, relatively on its own initiative. It is flowing naturally, and it goes into something that can collect it. There is an expectation that water will be going in and water will be going out. Wells were considered to be sources of living water because the water was coming up from the ground. Rivers were considered to be living water because the water was coming from the sky and there was runoff that was being collected into the river and so that was considered to be a source of living water. But water that would be in a jar would not really be considered to be living water or water that was a puddle on the ground after a rain. That was not considered to be living water. And so the people understood or they had a definition for living water already That was well understood. The Lord Jesus, I believe, had a deeper meaning to this living water that he is referring to, a different kind of living water. And so while he is using a phrase that the people used, that the people understood as they would use that phrase with each other, it had meaning to it. The Lord Jesus is imputing a different meaning into his reference or his referring to living water. This is explained as you continue to read. In verse 11, she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? In other words, the living water that she could get was already available to her because she had the tools in order to draw the water from the well. He didn't have those tools to draw the water from the well. In fact, he was there asking her for a drink of water to get the water for him. 
If he had the tools to get the water, he could have very easily gotten the water himself, and then he could give that water to her, or he could keep it for himself. Either way, it was considered to be living water, and they had a source for living water. She had a source for living water. What is he talking about? Why is he referring to a water that she cannot necessarily obtain that he can provide for her? What is he really talking about? That's why she says to him, "Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep." And she asked him, "Where then do you get that living water? Where do you get this living water that you are referring to when I can just get my own for myself?" In verse twelve, she follows it up by saying, "You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle?" In other words. Is he going to be greater than Jacob? Well, of course he is. We know that he's definitely greater than Jacob, but not because he's going to provide her with a well, not because he's going to provide her with water to drink, not because he's going to bless her flesh. In other words, he is greater than Jacob, not because of what he can provide her with to indulge her flesh. He is greater than Jacob because of what he can provide for her spirit. That's what made him greater than Jacob, of course. As you continue to read into verse thirteen, Jesus answered and said to her, "Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life." Now there is obviously an awful lot that the Lord Jesus is saying in this statement. This verse, verse fourteen, is definitely packed. With a lot of very important spiritual insights, would the Samaritan woman have any idea what he's talking about? I honestly don't think so. I honestly do not think that the Samaritan woman or anyone, for that matter, would have had any idea what he was actually talking about. I really believe that this is something that is spiritually discerned, and that a person cannot truly understand or appreciate it unless the Spirit of God is not only indwelling within them, but has provided them with this real experience. Of enjoying the depth of what the Lord Jesus has truly provided us in the deepest part of our being, I honestly don't believe that anyone could have truly appreciated the depth of what the Lord Jesus was saying when he was conducting his ministry. At least this verse here, as well as many others. But I do believe that this was recorded so that we can look back at it now and we can see what he's really saying and we can appreciate what he was saying early on in his ministry to others. And so, even if they did not really understand or have any idea, really, what he was talking about, we can see what he was talking about. We can understand what he was talking about, and the record is very clear to us as we can see that he has always offered himself to us, that he has always offered to us what we truly need, which is this well of water that will spring within us, so that we will never thirst again. A well that will become within us a well of water springing up to eternal life, not just physical life, but any eternal life, a living experience of knowing our God. That this is eternal life. It is knowing our God and the Lord Jesus, the One who He has sent. We all have deep needs within our hearts. We all have deep needs that can be described as being thirsty. That we thirst for something. That we have a need for something, as though we are going to die if we don't obtain it. Well, certainly we will die if we do not drink water. There is no doubt about that whatsoever. We will thirst for water. We will have a need for water. We will always have this need. And if we do not consume water, if we do not drink it, then we will die physically. 
So likewise, we thirst for another kind of water. We thirst for another kind of life. We thirst for something else in addition to that. And we will die if we do not receive that which we have a need for. With physical water, it's easy. It's easy to identify what that need is, and it's easy to identify the source that will meet that need. But this is something else. This is a spiritual matter. This has to do with the emptiness that an individual has that we thirst for, that we cannot easily identify. It's very difficult for people to really identify what their needs truly are. And I believe that the reason why is because there's a lot of deception in the world. There's a lot of unbelief in the world. There's a lot of confusion in the world. People are constantly being bombarded with all kinds of advertisements all the time that advertise things like do this, obtain that, participate in this, or don't do that, or don't do something else, or do something else. All these kinds of things are presented to us throughout our life on the basis of if we will do these things, obtain these things, participate in these things, then we will feel complete. The emptiness that is within us, the thirst that we have in the deepest part of our being, will finally be satisfied. And so people assume that the need for these things, that the need for certain kinds of relationships, that the need for certain people, the need for certain activities is what we really thirst for. But in truth, those are not the true needs. The true needs are something else. The true needs have to do with our need for being loved. The true needs have to do with our need for being accepted. We engage in relationships with other people because we believe that we will feel loved. We believe that we will feel accepted. We believe that we will have meaning and understanding and purpose in our lives. We won't, not through the world, but we believe that. And because of that, we end up living a life of being totally deceived, assuming that our need has to do with fulfilling our lack of these things that the world can provide. But the truth of the matter is that the world will never provide anything that we have a need for, that we are constantly thirsty and we will eventually die physically and we will die spiritually in that sense as well because we will no longer have an opportunity like we do have right now to be satisfied. The only way that we can be satisfied is to be satisfied by He who can satisfy us. And the only one who can do that is God Himself because He created us to have this thirst within us, to have these needs within us. But He also created us in such a way that only He can meet those needs. Only He can provide the true spiritual water that we have a need for that will satisfy the deepest part of our being. No one here on earth that he has created can possibly meet those needs, can possibly satisfy this thirst that is within us. This is a creative act that he has done specifically for this reason, so that we would turn to him and have an opportunity to know him. That's why he has done this, and that's why he has structured the world in the way that he has, and that is why he has created us in the way that he has created us. And that is what he is doing here, right now and today. He is reaching out to us, appealing to us, wanting to give to us freely as a free gift himself to meet the very deepest needs of our heart so that through the giving of himself and through us receiving him in us and experiencing him and enjoying all that he has for us as a person relates to us as a person. 
He is a person who relates to us as a person. As we enjoy that, as we live our lives out of the abundance of his love for us, out of the abundance of his acceptance for us, then this is a well that will be filled with his water. It will be filled to the extent where it will be overflowing to the point where others will have an opportunity to see and experience the living water that we have received so that they also can be encouraged and inspired to turn to him who will provide them with all that they have a need for. And this water is definitely perfect. This water is the kind of water that once you take of it, you will never have a need for anything else. You will know what it is to finally have your thirst satisfied. And when you experience this, you will never be the same. You can never be the same. You will never be able to turn back to the world with hope that perhaps the world may be able to satisfy this thirst. Because deep down inside, you will not only know that it cannot, but you will also know who can, and you will never be the same. The Lord Jesus spoke to the woman at the well in the context of what he wanted to give to her. But what he spoke about was something that was unique to her early in his ministry. In the beginning of his ministry, he was reaching out to the Jewish people on the basis of his messianic identity, on the basis of him being the legitimate king of Israel, the one who would be the Messiah for them. But to the Samaritan woman, he spoke very differently. To the Samaritan woman, he spoke to her on the basis of her personal need, on the basis of the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus, on the basis of the new covenant that would go into effect after he died. After he died, he died for the sins of the world so that he could restore to us as a free gift the spirit of life that had been lost in Adam. And through that restoration, we are resurrected. We are made spiritually alive by the indwelling presence of the living God within us. And because there is no sin left unforgiven, there is no sin that can possibly cause that life to depart from within us again. That is the message of the gospel, and that is what was introduced to the Samaritan woman, but it was not fully realized until after he rose from the dead. And I will continue with this subject in the next broadcast. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net.